0: It's a pitch black winter night and I'm walking outside along the gravel paths at Mount Vernon, George Washington's old home in Virginia. There's a candlelight tour going on here so everything's dark, except for a few fire pits and lanterns that are popping and crackling and there are reenactors and visitors who are standing around them singing. There's also just this beautiful icy white moon in the sky that's lighting up the Potomac River below. I actually work only about 15 miles from here in a very different environment, right. I
1: don't think
2: the newsroom of the government Washington government Post. Government
0: I'm Lillian Cunningham, and I'm the editor of a section here called On Leadership. I mostly interview current leaders in business and government, but I had the idea that, especially in this election year, it would be really fascinating to study up more on presidential leadership in particular like the skills and the circumstances that have made certain presidents effective or ineffective, and whether the type of leadership traits required to do the job well have changed significantly over the years. That's when I started confronting the fact that there are a lot of presidents I really know nothing about. Even the big-name presidents I thought I knew something about. We no
3: longer live in a world where only the actual firing of weapons Well, on Closer
0: Look, most of what I knew were just their very major successes or failures. My fellow Americans, I'm about to sign into law. The soundbites that have become famous. The Civil Rights Act of 1964. Or just the funny little myths that have somehow been lodged in our collective memory, like Taft getting stuck in a bathtub. The Washington Post's former publisher, Phil Graham, popularized the phrase that journalism is the first rough draft of history. I started thinking about that, and decided wouldn't it be really great to dig into each of the American presidencies by talking to the journalists around me at the Washington Post. These are some of the people who've often been first on the ground to record and assess a president's decisions and his actions, And then I thought, wouldn't it be really great if I took that and combined it with talking to historians and professors and biographers who spend their time studying those histories years or decades, or in some cases, centuries later. So, that's what brought me to George Washington's home on a really cold winter night. For the next 44 weeks, I'm going to go one by one through each of the American presidents. I'm going to try to better understand who all of them really were, how they came to hold the nation's highest office, how they confronted tough decisions, and which traits really helped or hurt their success on the job. And then I'm also really interested in the strange ways in which their legacies have shifted or cemented over the years. Were the presidents I never learned anything about really so lackluster and forgettable? And did the iconic ones really have some superhuman leadership capacity that the others didn't? Or have there been some other forces at play that, for one reason or another, have made us remember or forget the presidents that we have? I'm starting at the beginning, so this episode is going to explore the character of George Washington. Not every episode is going to focus so exclusively on the personality and the demeanor of the president, but Since George Washington gave us our very first example of what an American president should be like, it seemed fitting to kick off the series by looking a lot more closely at who he was as a person and how he came to define the role. For this, I'm going to talk to Joel Achenbach. He's a reporter at The Post who's written a book about George Washington. Julie Miller, who's a historian at the Library of Congress and who's basically the keeper of George Washington's papers. And then Bob Woodward, the legendary Washington Post reporter who broke the Watergate scandal and who's authored a number of books on the American presidency. This is the very first episode of Presidential.
3: We shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow.
0: What your country can do
1: for you. A date which will live in infamy.
0: Normally, I'll dive straight into discussing the president at hand, but since this is the first episode of the series, I want to take just a little time to zoom out and think through why and how we're going to approach this podcast. This is where Bob Woodward comes in. Since investigating the Watergate scandal that led to President Nixon's resignation, Bob Woodward's been immersed in uncovering the inner workings and decision-making of American presidents, including Clinton, Bush, Obama. So I asked his help in guiding the aim of this podcast— his first piece of advice to me was,
1: If you give a plain vanilla Wikipedia version of the presidents, you haven't kind of captured the, the deep uh, controversy that runs through American history. Good evening. This is the 37th time I have spoken to you from this office Here's so more of our conversation. I would start with the definition of the each job time of president I have done so to discuss with you some matter that I believe affected the What is it? And from working on eight presidents, my conclusion is that the president needs to establish what the next stage of good is for a majority of people in the country not a party, not an interest group, but a real majority. Then develop a plan, strategic plan, to, to get there and then execute it systematically. In obvious cases, the next stage of good is winning a war, getting out of a depression, uh, ending the Cold War. I urge the Soviet leader, Mr. Gorbachev, to send a new signal of openness to the world by tearing down that wall. Uh, Perhaps giving health care to everyone, raising taxes sometimes is the next stage of good. Cutting taxes often is the next stage of good too. Working with Congress, fighting Congress, fighting the Supreme Court, getting the Supreme Court to validate what you're doing as president and then one of the things to ask about each of these presidents, did they do that? Did they plan it? Did they luck into it? Or was it handed to them? Pearl Harbor, handed, given to President Roosevelt,
3: Yesterday, and he
1: had no choice.
3: December 7, 1941
1: 9-11 the terrorist attacks in live. New York and Washington. So it is a matter of ascertaining what the will of the president is. What does the president really want to do? And then to what extent do they succeed at or fail at working their will?
0: Do you um do you have the sense that then the sort of skills that are needed to execute on that are you know different every time and for every president or have you have you found that there are actually some sort of key leadership traits or skills that you've seen all this is the this is the
1: great question is there universal leadership skills or talents that apply in each case and and the answer when you look at this is no sometimes president needs to be really tough, and other times the president needs to be a great listener. Presidents also need to be creatures of instinct because they're in politics. Uh, Gerald Ford, when he pardoned Nixon, I always thought was the ultimate corruption of Watergate. Nixon goes free, all these people go to jail, and then when you look at it as I did and look at the record and interview Ford for hours and hours, why'd you do this? Turns out Ford was really interested in getting Nixon off the front page because he was going to be investigated, uh, certainly indicted, probably tried, maybe jailed as president. We'd have two or three more years of Watergate and Ford said I needed my own presidency. I had to dispose of Nixon. So what looked like, in 1974, the ultimate corruption turns out to be actually an act of courage in the national interest because Ford paid an immense political price for the pardon because of the suspicions there was a deal.
0: I mean, that's one of the things I find really fascinating too is the way that legacy shifts over time and and when it's kind of fair to start assessing whether a vision someone had has actually
1: the answer is it's always fair (laughs) (laughs) to make an assessment even in the moment uh, because that's the the way the democracy functions and open debate dialogue aggressive practice of the First Amendment. But I remember interviewing President George W. Bush about the Iraq War, and we'd spent hours on the question of why'd you do it, what happened, what were the decision points, step by step. And then at the end, I asked him, how do you think history will judge your Iraq War? He was standing in the Oval Office hands in his pockets, and they took his hands out. Kind of, His hands flew in the air, just very aggressively, and he said, history, we won't know. We'll all be dead. Well, he stuck in the question, but he's right. We don't know. We're going to be dead when the final assessments come in, and... Of course, as we've learned, there's never a final assessment.
0: All right, so here we are, finally ready to start talking about the subject of the episode, George Washington, who was unanimously elected in 1789 to be the first president of the United States. Joel Achenbach a fellow reporter at The Post, wrote a book about George Washington called The Grand Idea, George Washington's Potomac and the Race to the West. So I asked Joel what he thinks tends to get overlooked or forgotten today about who George Washington really was.
2: You know, Washington was so much more interesting than we realized, because over time he's become the man on the dollar bill. Uh, he's you, you think of him in that Gilbert Stewart portrait uh, as a kind of a stiff figure uh, you know gray-haired and a somewhat unknown famous person uh, and so he turns into a statue he turns into someone who uh, we, we, it's hard to picture him actually animated and alive and in fact he was a kind of like an action hero for much of his life, not just in the war, not just in the Revolutionary War, where obviously he was the commander of the army and a a great hero who spent eight and a half years fighting for our independence. But even before then, when he was in his early 20s, he kept getting in these these misadventures, the the Jumonville ambush, where he and his allies ambush a French officer and that helps trigger the Seven Years' War, known here as the French and Indian War. And soon after, he has a fiasco at Fort Necessity, where uh, he has to surrender and gets gets paroled, but easily could have been um, uh, executed, potentially, and and was already one of the most famous Americans at the age of roughly 22 because of, of his uh, 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 exploits. He... Had a, a few personality traits, though, that um, benefited him. Number one was that he had no fear. To an astonishing degree, he just simply never in his life seemed to experience the emotion. He just had a way of instigating a lot of trouble, and somehow escaping it. During the, um, the you know, the Braddock massacre uh, in 1755, he had bullets flying around him. I think four bullets went through uh, his cloak. Uh, it had a couple horses shot out from under him and somehow he survived. He was kind of like James Bond in the movies. He never actually gets shot for some reason. <laughs> he had many skirmishes where he, he could have died and, and, and misadventures in the backcountry. <clears throat> but he was, not, he was not, not afraid and he was ambitious. He tended to have sort of champagne tastes in a sense, which is peculiar because he was also this frontiersman at times. I mean, he was like Daniel Boone. He would He's someone who slept out in the open in the backwoods hundreds of miles from the nearest city and uh, was sort of indestructible in that way. Even as president, he had some rough moments where he would be caught in a, a thunderstorm in a boat on a river and, and so on. He, he did not live a an easy life, but he certainly did like the finer things in life.
0: So how do you think those exploits shaped his leadership style and his approach to being president?
2: So he must have felt that he had a, a providential Personal destiny by the fact that he kept getting in these scrapes and he kept surviving. Um, he had a sense that he was a great man doing something historic, and he certainly felt that about the country. He thought that America had uh, was was gifted by Providence. You know, essentially, that it was our it was our destiny to become a great country. Part of his personality was that he did instill in people a great deal of, of just obedience and reverence and he was the kind of leader who in a pinch in a battle he would be up front he was not someone who w- would be sitting back you know two hills over watching his men in a skirmish he'd be right up there at great personal risk and as as president he had to deal with the rise of partisanship something he had no interest in so he was always sort of caught in the middle but he was the only person who could have kept the the country together i think in those first really stormy years he was the only person who commanded respect from all directions uh, uh, politically Every, and everyone respected Washington. That's what was a really handy thing to have for a young country, is to have a president who is not divisive. Um, we don't have that today, obviously, uh, and it, you can kind of wonder how often in American history have we ever had that. Not very often, but for a young country to have someone like Washington, who was clearly the person who you needed to have as leader, and who was willing to do that job and to um, serve in the best interests of the country. And that was a really kind of a lucky break for us. He had a vision for this young country somehow growing into a powerful country. And that was at a time when it was not obvious at all that that could happen or would happen. the, the, The United States, when it was first formed, It it had a smattering of former colonies, now states that were essentially their own countries. When Thomas Jefferson referred to my country, he meant Virginia and it was Washington who figured out how can we take these um, different states and actually cohere them into a, a, a true nation. So this part of his life of being the the woodsman the canal builder the explorer uh the 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 person who kept lighting out for the wilderness and going over the mountains and going you know down the ohio river at a time when you know a well-to-do landowner just didn't do that his his sort of appreciation and feeling for the country at 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 the level of the landscape the rivers the mountains the you know what what passed for roads then this was someone who probably knew the country physically better than anyone else of his time and he knew in his head that if you wanted to keep the country together you had to create what he called the cement of interest among people uh, or between people so that people in the west would feel connected to the people in the east and would not feel connected just to whoever was down the Ohio or Mississippi River in New Orleans. Washington, more than anyone else of his day, except for maybe Benjamin Franklin, had the big picture about American destiny and the future of the country. And, of course, that was a, a vision that uh, turned out very badly for the Native Americans. It was also a vision that never in, during the colonial era and during the revolutionary era um, uh, resolved the the great tragic stain of, of slavery. Washington was not a perfect man by any stretch of the imagination and you could easily impose some of our current values upon him and his time and, and, and find him uh, not meeting uh, what we would expect. The most obvious example is that uh, he was a um, slave owner who did not free slaves in his own lifetime, only in his will, and then stipulating that they be free, freed only after his wife died. And at the same time, when you look at him in the context of his time, he, he did something that, for example, Thomas Jefferson didn't do. Jefferson didn't um, free his slaves in his will except for just a a few of them. And, uh, but Washington, he knew that slavery was wrong, and did take steps to make clear that this was not, this was not something that um, met the, the values of the country. And there is no one else in American history as important as George Washington. And with all due respect to Abraham Lincoln, for example, And uh, I think even Lincoln would acknowledge that. So Lincoln saved the country, but Washington made the country. And um, I, I, I think that he made it in part through sheer force of will. And yes, through optimism, through vision, through wanting to do something big.
0: One of the big things that a lot of people know about George Washington is how possibly his greatest act was giving up power and relinquishing the presidency after two terms. That's what really solidified America's democracy. I want to look a little bit more closely, though, at what exactly he was wrestling with when he took on the role of president to begin with. Even during his time in office, he was still sorting through what it meant to be a president rather than a king. I figured the best way to get inside his thoughts was to turn to his papers, and that meant turning to the Library of Congress. The Library of Congress is possibly my favorite building in Washington. It's this just gorgeous space, and it sits near the Supreme Court and the Capitol building, and it houses the original papers of just about every American president. From the Washington Post building, it's actually only about a 10-minute metro ride. So I packed up my recorder and my notebook and I headed over there to meet with Julie Miller. Julie Miller is a historian at the Library of Congress who specializes in early American history. And she's basically the main keeper of George Washington's papers. And she brought out these big, heavy archive books that contain Washington's delicate and yellowed letters with his perfect cursive handwriting. What's your sense of what... You know, m- most people overlook about him or don't well don't realize my, about who he is. And
3: my sense is that most people don't really know who Washington was at all, and they think of him as being a symbol or an icon. And to some extent, he contributed to that himself, even in his lifetime. He was very concerned about his own image, um, while at the same time being rather modest. Um, but I think one of the things that libraries like this one do is we collect papers of these presidents so that every generation of historians can go back and look at them again and bring new questions to them so that we're not reliant on this very remote image of somebody like Washington that, is, that has to do with myth-making, I think, to a great extent. But because we have his papers that document all kinds of very interesting aspects of his personal life, for example, we really can develop a sense of what he was like. And one of the most important aspects of that is that he was very much a man of the 18th century. And, and one of the things that contributed to his image and to his power is that he was considered an exemplary 18th century gentlemen so what does that mean that's yeah, something that, mean? that right in other words uh, you know we don't meet a lot of exemplary 18th century <laughs> gentlemen walking around these days but in the 18th century obviously this was something that everyone immediately identified and some of it was external it had to do with how he carried himself and how he appeared and his social graces he was a good horseman he was a good dancer that sort of thing and people paid attention to that sort of thing he was very popular with women
0: but he was, was he attractive as well
3: yes that he was Yo, yeah oh yeah, oh, yeah. He was. He was considered, considered quite the, dishy, if I can say that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> dishy? That's <laughs> not an 18th century term. If I were being set up on a blind date with George Washington. Oh, he was married. I just want to put that Oh, I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> mean, before he was There married. are a lot of reasons why I'm not going on a blind date with George Washington <laughs> well, right he's now. He's one thing. <laughs> um, but, you know, how would you describe him? And Well, I
3: mean, if you were going on a blind date with him, right, like say it's like, you know, 1757, okay, just pretend, and you're going on a blind date with George Washington, first of all, you'd be very impressed because he was really good-looking, you know, right? He was, you know, he was, he he had just finished uh, uh, having a leadership role in the French and Indian War and all this. Um, You would have found that he was extremely charming if you went to a dance or something, really good dancer, beautifully dressed. At that period of his life, he was ordering lots of um, really... um, fashionable clothing from England to wear, you know, he really liked that sort of thing. He would have looked really good, George Washington. <laughs> <laughs> but one thing you would have wanted to be aware of is that he was not a particularly rich person, and he was anxious to expand his holdings. And if you were a rich widow, as Martha Custis was, he would definitely be interested in your money. He would be interested in you, but he would be interested in your money. I don't, he, I mean, he didn't marry Martha Washington just for her money, but he married her for her money. So, you know, he was he was calculating, I think, to that extent. The other thing is that his um, he had a great deal of self-control, but one of the reasons he had to have so much self-control was because he had quite a lot of emotion. A lot of that emotion, you know, we've seen that he was... He was susceptible to feeling in ways that we might find attractive. But he was also pretty angry sometimes. And we have, for example, letters that he wrote particularly to people who owed him money, very angry letters. So you wouldn't want to get on the wrong side of him.
0: So, I mean, it does seem like, for the most part, a lot of the, the, the sort of mythology and the iconic imagery of him seems pretty... True to who he was, though, right? I mean, well, I think
3: um, he, uh, you know, the cherry tree business and yeah, not telling a so lie. What's that doesn't, well, what that's about is there was someone called Mason Weems who wrote um, a biography of Washington. And, you know, did he make that stuff all up? It's, it's actually a little unclear that he actually made it all up. There may have been some roots of truth in some of that. But it doesn't have too much to do with Washington. What it really tells us is that Washington was a person who attracted mythmaking. In other words, people wanted to tell stories about Washington. And to some extent, he himself was, you know, behind that a little bit because he was so self-controlled and so concerned about his image and so concerned about appearance. Not not, you know, entirely because he was some of it was insecurity, I think about his education for example. But some of it was out of I think of a sense of responsibility towards his role as the first president of the United States. You know, he wanted to make a good presentation. But he was very, very charismatic. In other words, he, people looked at him and they really saw him as being the most, you know, ideal person that they had ever seen. And they, you know, he, that, he gave that impression throughout his life. You know, so, and that, that was how people perceived him and to some extent he supported it so for example when he was president he, he went on a couple of tours of the country to sort of introduce himself mm. to people and when he was on um, one of these tours he would you know he would ride in a, a wagon like a carriage and when he would approach a town he would get out they would stop he would get out get on his white horse ride through the town on the white horse so people would see him entering on a white horse because he knew that's what they wanted to see uh-huh. And then when they passed through, he'd get off the white horse, get back in the carriage. <laughs> but Washington um, embodied self-control, self-abnegation, and modesty. In the 18th century, when political figures wrote things, they wrote them anonymously. They took pseudonyms when they wrote. The idea was that if you were writing something, some political essay, for example, it didn't have to do with you. It really just had to do with the ideas that you were writing about, so you would use a pseudonym of some kind.
0: Did he? Did he have a standard pseudonym
3: or? Who, Washington. Washington did, did not do a lot pseudonym? of political writing. No, he was not like Jefferson or Adams or Hamilton in that respect. In fact, one of the interesting things about Washington is that he had a very limited education, um, and he. Um, you know, he was aware of that, and he—he, he, I think, is a testament to his um, self-confidence. He had no trouble surrounding himself with people who had a better education and received their guidance when he needed it. One of the the examples of things that I've gathered up to talk about has to do with the many, many times that Washington said things like, I am not competent to be president, or I am not competent to be the commander of the Continental Army. And it's, and it's really interesting. So, And he often said it in a very sort of emotional way. And I'll just, you want to hear some examples? Yeah. I'll just give you some examples of what I mean by that. So, for example...
0: And you think he meant it genuinely? Oh, I do or think or he meant it genuinely. No, I think he
3: meant it genuinely. And I think he he felt that when he expressed his self-doubt, that people would not see that as weakness, but that they would see it as a strength. In other words, that they would understand his ability to be in touch with his emotions and to express his, his um, humility and modesty, that these were positive qualities. In other words... The culture that people lived in at the time that George Washington was alive was very different from the culture that we live in now in certain respects. And that's one of them. Modesty. Yeah, modesty was something that people really valued. In other words, you know, we're in the middle of a presidential election now, I don't think any of the candidates, for example, would say, I am not qualified to do this job. Washington said that publicly over and over. Washington was pressed to be president. In other words, people felt that he was the, the, the leader, the most natural leader. And he didn't really want to do it. So n- now let me just show you. Here I have some. There's a whole string of examples of where Washington expressed self-doubt about his ability to be president and unwillingness to be president. So for example, in his diary, he wrote, as he was setting off from Mount Vernon to New York, you ready? Oops. <laughs> <laughs> came to New York to serve as president and he wrote in his diary, about 10 o'clock I bade adieu to Mount Vernon, to private life and to domestic felicity, and with a mind oppressed with more anxious and painful sensations than I have words to express, set out for New York. And this is his diary, so this is private, right? But he said the same thing publicly. So he wrote to Charles Thompson, who was the guy who was sent to get him, and he wrote, I am so much affected by this fresh proof of my country's esteem and confidence that silence can best explain my gratitude. While I realize the arduous nature of the task which is conferred on me and feel my inability to perform it, I wish there may not be reason for regretting the choice. All I can promise is only that which can be accomplished by an honest zeal. In other words, I'll do my best, but I don't know, you know. And then he, he wrote, someone wrote to congratulate him, and he wrote, I should start this. I feel for those members of the new Congress who hitherto have given an unavailing attendance at the theater of this, blah, 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 for myself, blah, 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 forth. that my movements to the chair of, okay, so he's on his way, right? So he wrote, so that my movements to the chair of government, in other words, my trip from Virginia to New York, will be accompanied with feelings not unlike those of a culprit who is going to the place of his execution. Oh so unwilling am I, in the evening of a life nearly consumed in public cares, to quit a peaceful abode for an ocean of difficulties without, without that competency of political skill, abilities, and inclination which is necessary to manage the helm. So that's his sense, he's admitting, he's saying, I'm really not very well prepared to do this. Now, no one else believed that. Everyone else felt that he was very well prepared to do it, right? He led an army and so on. So he's being modest, but people admired this in Mm -hmm. him. In other words, they didn't feel that this was a problem. They felt that this was, according to their understanding of what a leader should be like, this was desirable. A leader should be somebody who's modest, self-abnegating, Emotional and yet willing to control himself. In other words, even if he feels emotional, he does what he's supposed to do. You know, he gets on his horse, he goes to New York.
0: So to what extent do you think that's him just being smart about the time he lives in and what he has to say to appeal to mm-hmm. people to be in that role? I mean, is it a yeah. genuine... That's a good question. First Modesty of all, it's a this is what you say to sound like a leader. If that's what right. a leader sounds like,
3: I think it was genuine. He's he's. I do not believe he was making any of this up. He was not. This is what he felt, and this is what he said. But he was very, very conscious of appearances all his life before he was president and while he was president. I have something really, really interesting about that. Skip ahead through my very my piles and piles of stuff. One of the really interesting things that we have in the George Washington papers is we have all kinds of records of Washington's personal financial life. So one of the things we have is a little book that was kept by a secretary who was actually uh, Martha Washington's nephew, Bartholomew Dandridge. It was a little record of daily expenses of the household when they lived in Philadelphia when Washington was president. So there's tons of this stuff about table ornaments, curtains, wine coolers. It's going on and on. And the reason for this is because the house where they lived was not only a private home, but it was the president's house. It was the place where there would be public receptions and dinners. And he was really, really concerned about appearances. And he says so in one of these letters.
0: So what kind of... What kind of image is he trying to craft of himself? Well, what does, he, what does he want? One of the things he was really worried about, and at one point he
3: re- reached out to John Adams, Alexander Hamilton, and a few others, was making sure that foreign powers understood that the United States was a legitimate country. And he himself had never been to a foreign country other than, I guess, Barbados in his youth. But some of the people he knew had, so for example, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson... Um, had both served as diplomats abroad in England and in France. Jefferson spent a long time in France and Adams spent pretty much time in England. And they knew how things were done in foreign courts. And Washington did not, so he asked them for advice. And they sort of impressed upon him, Adams in particular, and Hamilton, um, impressed upon him that, you know, if you want to be taken seriously, you have to think about what diplomats from these countries are going to expect based upon what they have seen at home. In other words, they've seen, you know, people dressed up in special suits and stuff like that. And and you know, so so Washington, who, you know, grew up you know, not poor but not rich, you know, in a in you know on in rural places in Virginia, which was really a colonial backwater, you know, if I could say that at the time that he was growing up. Um and he, was really, he really understood that this was a world he did not know, the world of, you know, foreign ministers and so on and so forth. So he, he really was concerned that, um, you know, the House really looked like a center of government. He's going on and on about, um, he's concerned, for example, he's concerned about wine coolers because he says, when you pass the bottles around, one bottle moves, another stops, and all are in confusion. This is really disturbing to him. He thinks that if you're going to have a state dinner, you don't want the bottles. In confusion, it's not a good thing. So he has a really good idea. And the idea is that he's going to have a wine cooler with room for several bottles with casters, on casters, so you could just roll it. And he actually invented this idea. So he asked Tobias Lear, her secretary, to find out what it would cost to get something like that made out of silver. And then he goes on and he says... Oh, he's here, he's going on and on about table armaments again. You can't imagine, there's so much. So what he's saying is, here I am, I'm the first president. I've got this house in Philadelphia. Members of foreign legations are going to come. We're going to have state dinners. And it's got to look to these people the way way they're used to such places looking. You know, it should look like what they're used to seeing in France, what they're used to seeing at a European court.
0: So he's worried about that. I mean, what do you feel like were some of the really key things he did or the attributes he had that sort of set the course for us to think of the presidency a certain way? That if it had been someone else who was president first, you know
3: Well we he might kind of have- I mean I think Washington kind of carried the presidency on the strength of his of his character and his personality. And I think that's why people wanted him. But he, him, you know, that's the thing. You could see he himself was pretty insecure, even though other people thought this about him. And one of the things he did, as I was, I was, was saying before, how he asked for advice periodically, and one of the things he did was he, he asked for advice about etiquette, and we'll see that Jefferson did the same. But Jefferson was much more, shall I say, devious <laughs> and did it in a slightly different tone. So Washington, in an effort to kind of set up his presidency, in other words, to establish how things would be done, he was really worried about etiquette. In other words, who should the president meet? When should he meet him? You know, and how could he sort of control access to himself so that he has enough time to get his work done? And he didn't want to seem too royal. You know, There was a debate about, for example, what to call the president he, he, he was really conscious of the fact that he wasn't a king, and he didn't want to be a king. But he didn't want to be too much of the people either. He needed to establish himself. You know, in other words, people had expectations of liberty and equality, and it was a republic, after all, not a monarchy. But they also expected to have a leader. And he, he was the one who had to figure out at the outset how to use his time and how to use his person in order to... Establish just how kingly or not kingly the president was going to be because there was no, people had no experience of having a president. They had an experience of having a king, a very remote king who Americans have met, obviously. But still, you know, they, so, you know, again, should they call him your highness? What should they do? You know, I mean, Congress meant to discuss this and they debated it actually very hotly. So. And do you think he nailed it? That I don't well I think he tried really, really hard. So for example he So he wrote this sort of form letter to a bunch of people, Adams and Hamilton, among them, and he concluded it by saying, Many things which appear of little importance themselves and at the beginning may have great and durable consequences from their having been established at the commencement of a new government, it will be much easier to commence the administration upon a well-adjusted system built on tenable grounds than to correct errors or alter inconveniences after they shall have been confirmed by habit. In other words... He wanted to be sure that things started off right and that he was responsible for doing that because he was the first. So he, he said, you know, he, he had this whole list of questions, well, what if I want to go have a tea, go to a tea party at my friend's house? Will other people get jealous because I haven't given them, the, you know, the same amount of time? How do I distinguish between me, just me, and me, the president? You know, he was really worried. So. He wrote these questions, and we have a couple of replies, and from Hamilton and from Adams. So, and they, you know, they wrote different things. And what Adams, you know, had this European experience, so he wrote... um, Basically, he said, you know, there's nothing like the president, so it's really, you know, hard to figure out—I'm paraphrasing, obviously—you know, what to do because, you know, we really haven't had exactly this office before. But then he sort of warns him and he says um, basically that, you know, these these foreign ministers who are going to come from abroad expect—and these are his words—a splendor and majesty in some degree— so in other words, we have to have some ceremony. In other words, otherwise people really won't take us seriously, especially, you know, from people who come from countries where people dress in crowns and ermine and scepters and all this stuff. We don't have any of that. We don't want any of that. But nonetheless, you have to have something. So that's what all the fussing about the table ornaments is about because Washington is really worried. You know, he's thinking just how ceremonial and exclusive he should be Or, you know, like there's a fine line. He had a balance between that and being open and available.
0: So that balance Washington was trying to strike between coming off as open and democratic, yet at the same time powerful and important? Well, that same tension plagued the design of the Washington Monument, and actually a lot of our other presidential memorials up through the present day. In fact, early on there was a real reluctance to have any big monuments at all to U.S. presidents. It just seemed too royal. In our next episode, we'll take a look at how we did end up with some very big monuments in D.C., and how they've played a significant role in shaping presidential legacy, and which presidents we think are most significant. For that, I'll be talking with Philip Kennicott, the Post's Pulitzer Prize-winning art and architecture critic. You might be thinking, isn't episode two about John Adams? Yes, it is! It is! And the amazing writer and historian David McCullough, who also won a Pulitzer Prize, will be talking all about John Adams next week. But the reason we'll also be talking about monuments is that there's an interesting backstory about how Adams doesn't have a monument in D.C., even though for more than a decade there's been an effort underway to get him one. ¶¶ Special thanks this week to our featured guests, Bob Woodward, Joel Achenbach, and Julie Miller. And a big thank you to the staff at the Library of Congress, who have all been so helpful, and to my many colleagues at The Post who helped get this thing launched. Music for the podcast is by Dave Westner. And finally, my biggest thanks really goes to all of you for listening to our first episode and getting really excited about the series. I already know there are a ton of you out there who have deep, deep interest and knowledge about many of the upcoming presidents and some great ideas for the stories and the questions you'd like us to tackle. So I would love to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at presidential underscore WP. I'll also be using Twitter and Instagram to share fun historical images and quotes and things like that from the president that we're featuring each week. So if you haven't had enough of George Washington, you should check out presidential underscore wp on those platforms to get uh, your fix fixed to get your fix (laughs) to get your fix and finally if you're not listening to this podcast on itunes you should think about going there to itunes.com slash presidential you can subscribe for free and that way you get all our episodes as soon as they come out every sunday Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back next week to talk John Adams. Hi there, Lillian again. If you're enjoying Presidential, check out another podcast I made right afterward called Constitutional. It's a deep dive into the story of our country's founding document. From abolition and civil rights to suffragists and the fight for the 19th Amendment,
3: women should have the vote because it is unjust, shameful, and cowardly for men to deprive women of that they demand for themselves.
0: It explores the revolutionary figures who advanced our understanding of free speech, religious freedom, the right to bear arms, immigration. Native American rights.
2: For the first time in the 103-year history of the United States, a federal judge had declared that an Indian, from that point forward, would have to be regarded as a person.
0: And it takes you back in time to the original battle of ideas at the Constitutional Convention.
2: There was nothing dry or dusty about it. This is the most radical body of democratic deliberation ever assembled.
0: These struggles, from 1787 all the way up to today, constitute the story of America. You can listen to the Constitutional Podcast at WashingtonPost.com Constitutional. Or you can find it on whatever your favorite podcast platform is.